Welcome to The Guidepost, a podcast of the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation. I'm Portia Ballard Espy, Executive Director of the William Winter Institute for Racial Reconciliation, and I'm excited to have in conversation with us today, Shyla Dewan. Shyla is a native of Houston. She's worked for the New York Times for some 20 years, mostly covering criminal justice issues. As a national correspondent, she's been based in Atlanta and now New York, where she's currently serving as a criminal justice editor with the New York Times. Shyla, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Welcome. We've heard the list of names made known worldwide. Trayvon Martin, Eric Garner, Michael Brown, Tamir Rice, Breonna Taylor, Fred, I mean, the list goes on and on. And now George Floyd. And amid the mounting complaints and citizen journalists posting a myriad of incidents of, of violence perpetrated against citizens, and now we see the national and global protest ignited by this killing of George Floyd. In your reporting, as you've conducted research and interviewed experts and everyday citizens, what do you feel, how, how great is the divide that you see in the relationship between police and the communities that they serve? I mean, I think it's quite evident to everyone right now that there's a large gulf a gaping, yawning gulf between the police and the communities they serve. And there's a concept that the police have known about and have been working on for some time called legitimacy. So the question is, does the community view the police as legitimate? Mm -hmm. And how, and if not, how do we increase that legitimacy? And so that is about trust that's about something called procedural justice, which is about how officers interact with the public. Do they explain what they're doing and why they're doing it? A lot of times, I mean, a why mm-hmm. can go a long way. I mean, people understand when the police have reasons for doing things, but the police training, and I think there's just a cultural bias against explaining. <laughs> so you have a lot of instances, and you see this in the protests all the time, that police are not letting the community know why they're doing what they're doing and it escalates the situation and it delegitimizes the police in the eyes of the community. Well, thank you. Thanks for explaining uh, and providing more clarity. Um, I know for a brief period there was some uh, work that was being done after Michael Brown's death and there was a quite a bit of a monetary investment or an infusion of cash uh, toward this, quote, problem, unquote. Do you feel that this was enough to move the needle, what was done in the wake of Michael Brown's death in 2014? Because, you know, right now we're seeing evidence to the contrary. What are you hearing? And, And do you think that George Floyd's death will be a tipping point for more significant change than what, what, happened in the wake of Michael Brown's death. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Portia, if you don't mind, I want to just put a pin in that very good question for a minute and go back to one other really important aspect of legitimacy that I did not mention. Okay. And that is what you saw in the George Floyd case, where you had three officers on the scene that did not intervene. And intervention is another really important concept. You, you saw after that the Minneapolis police 
institute a duty to intervene, which means when cops see other cops doing something wrong, they are supposed right. to put a stop to it. Actually, Minneapolis already had that on the books, but it's it's very difficult in some police department cultures for officers to do that. And it also is a huge blow to the legitimacy of the police. And when you think about it, it makes sense because the public can understand that the department can't control the actions of every cop at every moment. But what the public can't understand is why other officers can see something going so wrong and not put a stop to it. So that really, and then also, you know, if you see that they're not putting a stop to it, then who do you turn to for help? Who who do you report problems to? So that is a, is like almost like a vicious cycle of delegitimization when you see police not intervening. So I think we will be hearing a lot more about that in time to come. So you asked a great question about 2014, Mm -hmm. Ferguson, the death of Eric Garner, and the moment of national reckoning over policing that we experienced at that time. And um, we saw a lot of promises, a lot of vows to do better, a lot of thinking about how to do better. There was a presidential task force report on 21st century policing that had just pages and pages of recommendations Um, we discovered that we didn't even have the data to comprehend the problem. So we didn't know how many fatal police shootings there are every year Mm -hmm. by any kind of government source. We didn't know how many deaths in custody, like the death of Freddie Gray, which happened in 2015. We we didn't know how many of those there were. And so one of the biggest things was we're going to start collecting this data. And... The other part of what was going on is that the Obama administration was making a strong use of consent decrees, which is the federal mechanism for forcing a police department to overhaul itself and to come into compliance. Okay, so you've got these two different things. You've got bigger, broader efforts to change policing, and you have these individual efforts to change departments. If you look at the big, broad efforts, what you see is, um, honestly, it's like a lot of two steps forward, one and a half steps back. Mm. Um, There was, you know, there's been federal report after federal report and local report after local report. And a lot of times what happens is, you know, the community will say, we don't think our officer disciplinary system is working well and the community will study it. The community will do a report and collect best practices and issue research and recommendations. And then some time will pass and then the department will say, oh, we don't think our disciplinary process is working well. Let's do a report on it. Okay, so you just Mm -hmm. see this kind of over and over again, this like blue ribbon committee syndrome kind Mm -hmm. of thing happening. That has definitely happened since Ferguson, the national databases that were supposed to materialize to track those two things, which is police use of force, is serious incidents of police use of force, right? And deaths in police custody have really not gotten off the ground 
for various reasons. So they're in process, but we're talking about it's six years later now. Right. And we're still not, we still have not seen that data. So we're still looking at private sources like the Washington Post to track police shootings. And what we see there is a mixed picture. So if you look at the people who've been tracking it, their data, what you see is that in big cities that have had their feet held to the fire and have paid more attention to these issues, and many of which have had consent decrees or the voluntary version of consent decrees, you see a 30% decline in fatal police shootings. But the national number is still the same. Mm -hmm. Why? Because you're seeing an uptick in rural and suburban communities, smaller departments. And there's some theorizing that that may have to do with a change in the rhetoric around crime, that there's more fear-mongering around crime coming from the highest levels of government. So Mm -hmm. that's one theory as to why that may be. But you have to consider, too, that there's, I'm going to say this number, we use this number a lot, it's 18,000 police departments in this country. The truth is, we don't actually know if that number is right. We don't even know how many police departments are in this country. because. And I've heard that number thrown out before as well. I mean, I'll just say, like, kindly, it's an estimate. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's kind of astounding when you think about it. M- many of those departments are 25 officers or less. So how are you getting um, a consistent standard in training? How are you getting consistent standards for practices, use of force practices? It's, it's almost an impossible task. So when you ask what's changed since Ferguson, I could point to specific departments that have made significant progress Mm -hmm. in bringing down their arrest figures, really trying to dig in and build more trust with the community, things like that. Some places that have measurable differences, but um, the overall bigger picture is much harder to get a grasp on. And and this feeds into that conversation around defunding. And some people are using the term reimagine. And I wonder, are people really gravitating toward a total defunding? I've heard people having conversations about the fact that they don't need police, but I think the majority of people that, um, that I've heard say we do need the police. We just need to have a different relationship with policing. And I know that there was uh, an article that came out a couple of weeks ago in the Wall Street Journal, and the title of it was The Myth of Systemic Racism. And it offered pretty much that officers who use excessive force should be held accountable, but that there was no evidence of widespread racial bias. And, you know, that's something that people are talking about is racial bias in in policing and statistics around that. Um, in, In contradiction to what was in the article, uh, the Wall Street Journal article, there was a poll that was conducted by Monmouth University, and it asked the question, are police more likely to use excessive force on blacks than on whites? And 57% of those who were polled said yes. 33% said no, and then there was another 9% that just didn't know, know how to respond to that question. The research that you are doing, conversations that you're having with subject matter experts as well as everyday citizens, are you hearing that people feel that there is systemic race, racism in policing? 
systemic racial bias in the way that police are operating in communities. I mean, there is, there's so much to unpack in your question and, and we should try to talk about it all um, from the Wall Street Journal piece to defunding the police to changing public attitudes about this. But I will, I'll try to answer your last question first. Okay. So there is no question that there is systemic racism in policing, but that's because there's no question that there's systemic racism in this country. And you cannot separate policing from that. And we can talk about a number of reasons why, but I think the Winter Institute should understand more than anyone that, you know, we have a, we have an input problem, if you will. We have a, mm -hmm. we have a much bigger problem than just the police. Now, why the police become a flashpoint for this issue is because the police have guns, the authority to use force, including deadly force, and because the institution of policing itself has been a tool for racial control over and over again. And so that makes systemic racism in policing a matter of life and death. So that's why we, we are talking about policing in this way so much more. But if you look at, say, inputs, I mean, there's, there was, before George Floyd died, there was a whole conversation about calling the police on Black people with the woman in Central Park who called the police. Yes. <laughs> okay, a white woman called the police to report a Black man who was bird watching in the park when he tried to get her to comply with the law of putting her mm -hmm. dog on the leash. Right. So, and, and that is a huge thing. So when you look at police use of force or a lot of police disparities, right? They are driven to some degree by the service calls they get. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you get 90 service calls complaining about a black person who just walked by, who looks suspicious or is barbecuing in the park, using the wrong kind of fuel or whatever, then you're going to see that reflected in your interactions with the public, good and bad, right? So you have an input problem. That's not the only issue in policing because you also have traffic stops, which the police, you have, the police do a lot of discretionary things mm -hmm. where you also see this bias show up. But there's no reason for us to expect the police to have less of a bias than the rest of the country right? I mean, right. that would be a tall order. So, so that's one thing. You know, I think th the bottom line is it's, it's very clear. You can see in the numbers, and I can unpack the numbers in the Wall Street Journal article that you mentioned, for example. She talks about a study that shows that there's no discrimination in police shootings. I think this is, a, I'm, I hope I'm saying this right. I think this was a study of fatal police shootings, right. where they looked in depth at one year's worth a fatal police shooting, when you control for like what I was talking about, service calls or where the crime is happening, then you don't see a disparity in what the police did. However, there were some caveats in that study that are really important. One is that the study found that black victims of police shootings were more likely to be unarmed and posing no threat to officers. And white victims of police shootings were much, much more likely to have been provoking 
police violence by trying, they call it suicide by cop, to be basically inviting the police to shoot them through extreme actions and extreme provocations. So, you, you know, when you look deeply at this stuff, it gets much more complicated. I talked to a few um, union officials over the past week or so, mm-hmm. and they will say, you know, the police aren't racist. We're not racist. And I think what they're hearing is, is there racism in your heart? And we all know that the discussion is more complicated than that. You know, systemic racism, you can't look into every individual's heart to see if there's racism there or not. But it's, it's about how we all were raised and live in a racist system. So I think they're not even getting the concept of what systemic racism means. And you certainly heard it in some of the, the exchanges on Capitol Hill. Um, yes. It's like almost like, let's start with the basic idea of, of what this means when we say systemic racism. And I love listening to Vanita Gupta try to explain it to Congress. Yeah. Well, and, and I think it has to be data driven. I think sometimes people don't understand unless they see the numbers and then there's going to be a dispute over who collected the, the data, you know, who's, who's presenting the numbers. I want to, inter- I'm sorry to interrupt you, but no, I no. do want to say that, you know, that the data is, if you use the police department's own data, okay, or the states, in many cases, the state's own data, you're going to see these disparities show up. It's not really a question of, is this data right or wrong? We know that there are disproportionate impacts of the criminal justice system. That's not really in question at all, because then you have to look at individual instances. And, you know, for example, my story today, I had to look at the individual instance of the killing of Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta, he was shot in a Wendy's parking lot. And so, but when you start to look at it, it's, it's a very, it's almost like at this point, it's a very unsatisfying exercise to look at these individual instances one by one, because in each one, there's all of these sort of individualized questions, which are relevant to that situation, but they're not as relevant to the larger discussion. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. It does. Um, I'm remembering something and I wrote it down just so I could remember it. The former chief of police in Atlanta, Erica, Erica Shields. Shields. Mm-hmm. She said something and I think you quoted it. Uh, you may have quoted her at some point, but anyway, she, she talked about a killing. I think it was, it was college students that were on a campus. She, she was talking about, she said, I know that we cause further fear to you in a space that's already so fearful. So for so many African-Americans and I'm genuinely sorry. So to your point, they do know, you know, I think Mm -hmm. they know, but I often still hear officials, you know, debating whether or not this is actually happening in the way that we think it is specifically targeting a certain community of people. I mean, it's also interesting that you use the word targeting because there again, I feel like, a police officer would say, I'm not targeting. So it's also the structures which create this targeting. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, where do you have community investment? Where do you have safe housing? Where do you have good jobs? Where do you have a good education? Where are you giving people options in life to get ahead? Do you know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. it's like an individual cop is going to say, I'm not targeting. That guy had a gun, you know, so it's, it, it, it is a, it's a hard thing to navigate. I think this space, 
you know, it's so interesting to me, you hear, you've heard some police say in recent days, stop treating us like thugs. <laughs> stop disrespecting us. You've got to give us respect. And it's like, it's a this mirror is, image, right? What of what yes, the protesters exactly. are saying. Right. And it's almost like you, these two sides cannot hear each other. And in this case, I think, you know, it's incumbent upon the, the police to not use that kind of rhetoric and to understand why that kind of rhetoric is even more upsetting to and even more inflaming of the situation. I think it's their responsibility in this world, but they do feel abandoned. They do feel like they've been doing the job that they were asked to do all this time. Mm -hmm. It's sort of like faulting the Atlanta cops for trying to arrest Brooks because he was drunk driving. Okay. So take that. You know, a lot of people said, why did they arrest him? Why didn't they just let him walk home when he offered to walk home? Why this, this, and this? Well, I think a big answer to that question is that for decades, there have been concerted campaigns to get the cops to take drunk driving very seriously, right? We've had mad, we've had, you can't just let these people drive home. You're not taking, this kills people. It's the leading cause of death on US roadways. We want you to take a low tolerance or zero tolerance approach to drunk driving. This is what we've told the police. So if the community now wants the police to do something different in those situations, and this will get to defunding the police in a minute, if they want a different response, that has to be thought through mm -hmm. with consideration of the fact that, you know, hey, at one point we thought this was really too risky to allow in our communities. And the walking home is another issue, but, you know, there's the police will say, people that they've let walk home have been hit by cars or people that they've allowed to walk home have just gotten the keys to a different car and gone back out or gotten into a domestic violence situation. So there's a police answer to that side too. So I didn't want to just like skip over that. But I think the broader question is, what have we been telling the police to do? And what have lawmakers been telling the police to do? So it's just not policing in a vacuum. Right. And, and I do think that that's where the relationship building piece comes in. People start talking now and they always wax nostalgically about community policing. I remember when and the, the, the various community programs that the police sponsored for young people who were interested in becoming law enforcement officials. And the, you know, they would stop and play basketball with a group of kids in the communities that they patrolled. And, the, you know, they were seen as a friendly force. And in some communities, they've never been seen as a friendly force. But we believe that there's an opportunity for all communities to come together to do some type of assessment to figure out what is it that's causing this problem in our community and how can we, the community and police and, and law enforcement, solve this problem together genuinely. The question is whether or not people are being heard. People are being asked to do certain things. They're talking about certain issues that are impacting them. But are we hearing each other? And, and are we taking action based on what we hear? I think right now we're not hearing each other. And, um, you know, that is, the, that is the chickens coming home to roost. When you say, hear unions now saying, we want to be at this table. Well, you didn't, you didn't diversify your leadership soon enough. You didn't persuade or change the hearts and minds of those chapters that have fought against police accountability for so long that people are fed up and they don't, 
they don't want to give the union a seat at the table because they've given the union a seat at the table before and time and time again, it's just been, you know, um, death by a thousand cuts for the reforms that need to be made. And that's why a consent decree is tricky. A lot of times police chiefs and some members of the policing department want the consent decree. Why? Because it gives them the cover to do what they want to do anyway. It's only that federal judge that can look at the union contract and say, no, 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 you can't have that Mm -hmm. provision in your union contract. That's a violation of the consent decree. So, you know, this can be deceptive to just say the consent decree is a mandatory process that's forcing everyone to come to the table. It's, it can also be cover for people who want to make changes. And, you know, by the way, the Atlanta police chief who you mentioned and quoted resigned. Yes. And you see this time and again, too, that a, um, a chief who kind of gets it comes in, wants to make changes and either an incident like the Brooks shooting happens and they have to go or they meet so much opposition from the union that they lose the support of the elected officials. It's a very hard job to try to make changes within a police force. I want to explore that thought around, you know, change with regard to defunding, this conversation around defunding and and reimagining. And I haven't heard a whole lot about what people want to do. I've heard people say that they think that some of the money that's being put into funding police departments need to go into other support services like mental health screening, you know, even social services, other social social services that could address uh, underlying problems that may create issues for police and communities. Some are just flat out saying, we don't need the police. We can handle this, you know, on our own in our community. So there's one extreme, there's this continuum. Uh, What are you hearing mostly from people with regard to this issue around defunding the police or reimagining policing? I mean, I'm hearing, I'm hearing what you're hearing, which, I mean, A, this is an extremely emotional moment and understandably so. And I think that some people are just, and when you look at the the failure to achieve significant reform in this country over the last six years or longer, you understand that rage and you understand the abolitionist point of view. Mm -hmm. For me, the way I think about it is there's this idea in criminal justice in general, not just policing, that if you scrapped the system, you know, which is arguably has racist roots, which arguably helped perpetuate slavery and racial control, which is, and if, if you don't buy into that line of thinking, it has, it's full of perverse incentives that don't actually ensure community safety. You know, elected district attorneys, campaign contributions, um, a kind of winning mentality as opposed to a justice mentality. I mean, you see throughout the, even, even really basic ideas like to increase the deterrent of the justice system, you need to increase the length of sentences. All right. Mm-hmm. We don't actually, we, we, now, we now don't actually think that's true, broadly speaking. Okay. But that wasn't based on empirical research to begin with. That was an assumption. So you have a collection of assumptions and motivations that created the system we have now. So when I think about defunding the police, I feel, I think about it like if we were going to start over completely, how would we keep our communities safe? Right. 
Okay. So is, you know, and you'll hear, I mean, this, what's interesting is that again, like you said, this is not necessarily something that the police are opposed to. If I think every police officer I've ever talked to has said, why am I considered a mental health service provider? I'm not a mental health service provider or even sheriffs with their jails right. full of mentally ill people who are extremely difficult to take care of and need specialized care. But we're, we're thinking that sheriffs are going to do this. And I think they will be the first to tell you that this is not their thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's not. And so, so if you want to look at safety, you might start with how do we take care of people who are mentally ill and keep them stable, keep them on their meds, keep them with in treatment, whatever, whatever it is that they need. That's right for them. I'm, I'm just want to be clear that I'm not, uh, I'm not promoting medication as a solution to, to all mental illness. Um, but if we had systems in place to do that, to go to the root causes of crime, like poverty, which we know is the mother of crime, right? So, so then how much safer would your communities be if you address those root causes and would the need for the police diminish accordingly? So I think that's one thing people are talking about, you know, that it is, it is, it is weird to have a paramilitary force in your neighborhood that's there to quote unquote, keep order. I mean, for many communities, that does not feel safe and protected. It doesn't. It, it, it makes people, I mean, it puts fear in the heart of people, quite frankly. Yeah. In the wake of George Floyd's murder, is there anything that will allow for the balance of constitutional liberties and the safety of both our public and the police officers that, that are required to maintain safety for the public? Is there anything that can, can help to provide balance there? Do you think that there are things that are happening to create some best practices that can help us to move forward in a positive way with regard to police and community relations? I'm sure. Yes. I I think, I mean, I want to preface this by saying that I think this balance between liberty and safety is a constant, Mm -hmm. it's a constant high wire that we've had to walk in this country. And I think many people feel now that we've gone way too far onto the safety side and away from the liberty side. There are certainly best practices that, that you can use um, for example, like you can, right now you can arrest somebody for jaywalking. You can forcibly arrest them, handcuff them and take them to jail or for an open container for disorderly conduct, failure to obey a police officer. I mean, you can ratchet down some of those opportunities for interaction. I mean, we've seen time and again that a basic traffic stop goes horribly wrong. You know, so one answer is just reduce, like if, if police are not arresting you, then resisting arrest is not a possibility. So one thing is just to try to reduce arrests, reduce patrols, reduce stop and frisk, reduce these opportunities for things to go awry. So that's one. Two, you have various ways of influencing police culture which is the hardest thing to do, and policy. So we're seeing a lot of talk about policy training. So in Europe, 
there are places where you have to go to school for three years to become a police officer. And I don't think there's any place in the United States where you have to train for three years to become a police officer. Sometimes it's more like six weeks or six months. So we really do, you know, we, we have very high expectations of departments that have low hiring standards and low training standards. So how are we expecting so much out of these young recruits who are in their twenties? They're no more yet educated and aware than any other person in their twenties. And, you know, we're giving them guns and allowing them to walk on the street. It's like, you know, maybe, maybe we have to raise the standards to European levels for police. Not, not that European police are perfect, but it's a big difference in training. National standards, even like centralizing more police forces. So you don't have 18,000 of them that are all different. You know, there's, there's different ways to talk about reimagining the police and what they do. Well, we want to thank you and thank you for your um, excellent reporting and continuing to tell the story and uh, giving us data that we need to have the conversation around how we can make positive change in communities. So thank you for all you do. And thanks for being with us. Thank you, Portia. And thanks for how much the William Winter Institute has taught me through the years about how to think and talk about these issues.